Heavenly Father, as we proceed with our study of life led by your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding of a believer's life in the Spirit that we may walk in a manner worthy of our profession of being followers of Jesus Christ and sharpen the awareness of our actions and our acts and those of others as we live out our lives in this fallen world. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, having finished chapter 7 two weeks ago, uh, Paul concluded his teaching on sanctification through union with Christ with an analogy to marriage, shifting to a pastoral question about the goodness of the law in spite of our sin and how believers retain confidence before God, even though indwelling sin is very evident in our thoughts and our behaviors. So that's our review of chapter 7. Uh, today we'll be tackling uh, the first part of chapter 8. Um, hopefully we, I can get through this. Uh, we'll be doing verses 1 through 28. And I've thought about whether to read the text. And therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot be it who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, and to fear. But you have received the Spirit himself, bears of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, with him. For I can see us, for the creation wait, was subjected to futility, itself would be set free from God. For we know that, and not only the creation, as we wait eagerly for a hope, we were saved. But if we hope for what we do, it helps us in our weakness for us with groanings to the Spirit. Because the Spirit, and we know that for the world, according to His purpose, He had His blessing to it. We have Romans 8, 1. Calls attention to everything He has said. But concludes that there is no condemnation. There is, if we're followers of Christ, move beyond condemnation for, this is one of the For the Father and His sheep forever. There is no condemnation left for His Son. And if we are in the Son, we're in the cleft of the rock. We're in the shelter of the rock of ages. We're covered and hidden, safe now and forevermore. The Apostle John tells a story of a woman caught in adultery, and she's brought in her shame by the Pharisees to the feet of Jesus. In the midst of her public humiliation, the Pharisees began to test Jesus to see if he would enforce the law of Moses, which requires the death penalty. Well, Jesus knelt down and began to write in the sand. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote in the sand, but let's speculate. Maybe that he wrote the word embezzler while looking at one of the men who then dropped his stone and began walking away. And Jesus continued to ride in the sands, and every other man that was there followed suit. So Jesus being alone with the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, sin no more. That's John 8, 10, and 11. Well, how much would it mean if Jesus looked at us and spoke those words? From this day forward, Christ will not condemn you, even though others may. If we're in union with Christ, we're safe. There is no condemnation left for us. Even though we still stumble, our lives are described as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 4b. We are not enslaved to the flesh anymore. 
And who will rescue us from this body of sin? God will, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, the failure of the law, Romans 8, 2. Here in this verse, the first instance of the word law refers to the principle, and the second refers to the moral standards. The principle of life in Jesus Christ is what makes us free from the principle of sin and death. When we're not in Christ, we operate by the principle of sin. Outside of Christ, sin defines our existence, and the natural consequence of that sin is death. Natural law is known to every individual, and human reason advises us what seems uh, to do what seems best. But even in as human reason reason urges us to do what is best, it, it isn't in accord with the will of God, but according to our own thoughts. It really does suggest to do what is good in a bad sense. For human reason desires its own benefit and doesn't consider or even care about a higher law, God's law. Romans 3, 8-3 now Paul is speaking of the impotency of the moral law its failure and this is what Paul has been laboring throughout the book of Romans so far the Holy Spirit knows how weak is our grasp of the gospel for we keep on doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result we keep falling back to the idea that somehow we can justify ourselves by our behavior good deeds and morality well, Paul has come at this from every angle to get rid of that idea and to grind off that spot where that idea once stood, reiterating that the law can't do it for us. Well, coming to sin is condemned here, Romans 8, 3b to 4. Notice... Notice how careful Paul is to say in 3b that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and not in the identity of sinful flesh. Jesus Christ is like us, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us. In all respects except one, he is without sin. Jesus, uh, in the incarnation, all of the proper, all that is proper to humanity was given to his human nature of our Redeemer except for sin. Jesus was born without sin. Jesus was born as Adam was before the fall, not in bondage to a corrupt nature. As an uncorrupted human being, Christ condemned the sin that binds us by taking it upon himself. In the final phrase of 3b he condemns him in the flesh Paul is describing the cross the work of Christ in expiation or atonement or redemption when Christ went to the cross in our place sin was condemned the cup that Jesus wrestled with at Gethsemane was filled with the wrath of God wrath that was directed against sin and Jesus drank it down Jesus accepted into himself the imputation of my sin and your sin. When Jesus went to the cross, the, pure, the punitive treatment at the hands of the soldiers wasn't Jesus' primary concern. Jesus went to the cross to receive the punishment for sin by the Father in order to remove our sin. And that, beloved, is the gospel. There is no earthly power to make us clean. The blot is indelible. Only God can remove our sin which is what the gospel is. Jesus, in Jesus, there is no condemnation for his people. There is condemnation for sin, but it's condemned in Christ and removed. Here is the great exchange. Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness, which is our only hope. We must be willing to shed our own blood if necessary for the sake of the gospel. Well, let's, let's summarize these first four verses. 
I've rewritten it uh, to read like this. There is, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ Jesus do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is how I tend to think about it. Uh, it's a, a, it is a succinct uh, marker for me and I use it in that way. The carnal mindset, this would be life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Well, mindsets influence how people behave, behave in life. Uh, for example, as people encounter the vast range of life situations, a specific mindset is triggered that directly impacts their behavior in that specific situation. People can and do have multiple mindsets. The two most common categories are those that are concrete and those that are variable. More broadly, their mindsets for poverty or wealth, abundance or scarcity, positive or negative, victim or protector, and losing or winning. And there are many others that represent one's total inventory, and each one is based on various values, beliefs, experiences, and opinions that comprise one's thinking at the conscious and the unconscious levels. Now, it goes without saying that any one of us with appropriate spiritual discernment would be able to identify our intended actions or reactions as to their being flesh or spirit during any moment of our life. However, the key issue here is mindset, the what, the why, the how of our intended action. And action is always an expression of our intentions. There is a degree of fluidity in all of us that tends to mask our or highlight our concretely held beliefs. In other words, what is our mindset? Test yourself. What is your first thought? And how, how far do you execute that first thought before you realize its origin? If its origin is from the flesh or from the spirit? Moving on to verse 5. Paul continues the contrast here between life in the flesh and life in the spirit, between the old man and the new man, illustrating more characteristics of each, characteristics of each state. If we question our being in Christ, the first place to look is our mindset. Now, I'm not asking you uh, if, if you simply think about such things, but rather... What is your mind set on? What's the focus of our life? What do we think about most of the time? Is there a preoccupation with goals and ambitions and desires and appetites for the world? What's our focus? We don't know where we're going to be tomorrow, in a year, or even five years from now. What really matters is where are we going to be in eternity? It's a reality for all of us. It's easy, even convenient, to fix our hearts on earthly pursuits, and to go through life missing the gracious gift of the Spirit-filled life. Live our lives now as we would want to have lived in the moment we transition from this fallen world. Then we will enjoy the brightness of God's glory without interruption. The remainder of this verse, 5b, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Well, we should set our minds on the things of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the sweetness of God. Now we're at verse 6 and 8. Verse 6 is contrasting two mindsets. God is the supreme obstacle to people finding happiness in their fleshly desires. The life of the flesh isn't neutral, but it's rather opposed to God. That's the point here in verse 6a and 7 and 8. Our culture is unmistakably on a downhill glide path and rejecting the very idea 
that there's a creator God to whom we're accountable. And we know that unbelievers will never admit to that. Because in the original state of corruption, humans only have a fleshly mindset. And this is what Paul called in Romans 1.28, a debased mind. Unbelievers can't obey the law of God, nor do the will of God. And an even worse verdict is that they can't do anything to please God. Unbelievers can and do important things in society and are of, that are of significant benefit to humanity. However, these are acts of benevolence. They're, they're only good works out of a heart that is at enmity with God. And the only result from God will be his displeasure, which is a euphemism for wrath. Recall the context here in Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Consequently, for those who do not walk in according with the Spirit, those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is nothing but condemnation. This is, this is the only possible consequence for a life defined by a fleshly mindset, one in which the mind is at war with God and with his law, and it does not want to be ruled by God. Well, what's the necessary condition? Here in Romans 8, 9, we find that the only necessary condition given is that the Spirit of God dwells in us. This is where an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is so vitally necessary to a biblical understanding of what Christianity is all about. We cannot be in Christ unless the Holy Spirit regenerates our dead soul, giving us new life, thereby changing our affection from ourselves and the world toward God. Recall from John 3, how Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus at night, and he learned this truth from our Savior's words. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Assurance. We're at verse 10 and 11 now. Are we really in a state of grace? How can we know for sure that we're saved? Well, this question was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. The Westminster Confession, uh, the divines there meeting in 1643 to 1648, uh, one of their uh, documents outputting this Westminster Confession was chapter 18, Assurance of Grace and Salvation. And this addresses four particular questions about assurance. First, what it is, what it isn't. Second, what is the purpose of assurance? Three, how can we have assurance? And lastly, what do we do if our assurance is weakened? Well, in contrast to Roman Catholic teaching, the Reformers insisted that because salvation was accomplished by God's work alone, believers could know for certain that they were saved. Christ's life Death and resurrection secured the full salvation of all of his people. Believers, instead of striving to add sufficient works to be saved, receive and rest upon Christ's finished work for their salvation. By the work of the Spirit, believers are united with Christ and receive all of his benefits. These benefits include the perseverance of believers until the day of redemption. Assurance of salvation is one of the most precious gifts from the Reformation. As the Reformation, as the Reformers taught, we don't have to wonder if we've done enough to be saved. We don't have to live in fear that God will reject us at the last judgment. Our Savior has been, um, our salvation has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And God has begun a good work in us and he will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6 tells us, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and, and this is the exact written statement from their uh, theology. 
that professing believers cannot have an infallible certainty of their own salvation. There is a possibility of self-deception, Matthew 7, 22 and 23. And I've included the words there to that verse. There is also a possibility for falling from grace through mortal sin and even falling away from the faith entirely. And they point to Luke uh, 8 verse 13. Again, that verse is there on the overhead for you. And then they say that in the light of these warnings and admonitions that we must understand Scripture's positive statements concerning our ability to know and have confidence of our salvation, assurance we may have, infallible certainty we may not. In fact, this notion was specifically rejected by the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563, and they haven't changed it until today. If anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless we have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. Sixth session, canon 16. So when we meet with our Roman Catholic brothers, uh, just bear that in mind, that that is the teaching and Although they have assurance, uh, it's, it's not absolutely certain in their mind. However, God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word teaches certainty, which is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. The Bible is authoritative, it's reliable, and it's sufficient to meet all of our needs. A life in the Spirit. We're approaching now verses 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul is giving us pastoral counsel in these verses, providing information from divine revelation that should calm our spirits and increase our confidence in the state of grace to which we have been called. In verse 12, we're reminded that we don't owe the flesh anything not under bondage to sin, no obligation to satisfy the lust of our fallen human nature. In verse 13, we are instead debtors to the Holy Spirit. So far, this is not the greatest news. If we can be sure we're saved only by putting to death all the sins of our flesh, then we have little reason to be sure of our salvation. We are in the same predicament as the Roman Catholic Church proclaims. Fortunately, the apostle continues with verse 14. And if we want to know that we are in a state of grace, if we want to know that we are children of God, we can look here for the answer. The first test, are we led by the Holy Spirit? Now, if there's any biblical concept that has been thoroughly disjointed, this one of being led by the Holy Spirit would be the near the top of such a list this happens when theology becomes Christian jargon, gone off the rails. And then over time, it, it, it can define one's theology rather than the actual Word of God. The typical language of being led by the Spirit, of which I am familiar, is when one is speaking in concrete terms as having received very specific guidance from God, and that He opens and closes doors or windows in specific situations. Now, there's nothing wrong with the idea that God leads his people where he wants them to go and to experiences that he wants them to have. But that's not the primary biblical meaning of being led by the Spirit. One writer summed it up like this. What is the will of God? Is it some specific secret plan God has for us and wants us to spend days, weeks, or even years discovering? Well, not at all. But it rather consists of a sober life, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and offering praise and gratitude to God for His goodness. And it's also true that there is a sovereign, efficacious will of God, as it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29a, the secret things belong to the Lord. Well, this verse is referring to the hidden will of God, 
The secret things belong to the Lord, and God does not intend for us to know these things, these secret things, no matter how hard we pray, that He would reveal them to us. And John Calvin said that when God closes His holy mouth, we should also stop, that we may go no further. When the Bible speaks of the will of God for our lives, it does so in a very, uh, very differently uh, from some of the stuff we hear, think, and even speak ourselves. Here's one, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8, provides a succinct summary. There are others. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you obtain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that one that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all things, as we are told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, you know, efforts directed at how, when, and where, which field of educational study we should pursue, where to live, which job to take, who should or shouldn't we date or marry, but rather spending more time applying the biblical revelation of what God wants from his people would produce a much more satisfied and fruitful Christian. The Spirit guides his people on the path of righteousness and to holiness. If our lives are directed by the Spirit, it's a sure and certain sign that we are children of God. Because the indwelling Spirit inclines our hearts to a hunger and a thirst for obedience in Christ. He gives us an affection enabling our response to Jesus' statement in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Continuing with life in the Spirit with uh, verse 15 there's a contrast here between two kinds of spirits. One is the spirit of bondage produced by the flesh. It's, it's the spirit of the unregenerated person enslaved to the sinful impulses. However, we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the spirit of adoption and no longer enslaved to the spirit of bondage. One of the great consequences of uh, justification is that all those who are justified are immediately adopted into the family of God and now have an unspeakable privilege of addressing God as Father. God's title of Abba Father is only found in the passages of Mark 14.36 here in Romans 15 and Galatians 4.6. Only two speakers use these words, Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The word Abba is an Aramaic word that means father. It's a common term that expresses affection, confidence, and trust. So the term Abba Father is not an acknowledgement merely to call out in praise or recognition such as we do with Heavenly Father or Father God. Abba Father, as conveyed through Jesus and Paul, reflects the understanding that God knows us better than we know ourselves and that he established paths for us before we took our first steps as humans. When we use Abba Father in prayer or here at reference and sermon, we should envision a Father who knows our greatest strengths, our greatest weaknesses, and knows our beginning and our end. Well, the witness of the Spirit comes to us in verses 16 and 17. And here we finally come to the deepest and highest level of assurance of salvation that we can achieve in this world. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In the final analysis, our assurance of salvation is not a logical deduction percolated from our theology, certainly not based on a careful analysis of our behavior. Our final assurance comes by the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness with and through our spirits that we are children of God. It's verse 17a. 
and with the provision of verse 17b. We should understand that when the Spirit communicates to God's people, that communication is to them is by the Word, with the Word and through the Word, and never against the Word. If we lack assurance and want to be at peace, going to the Word is the prescription and the physical therapy required. Our Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. As it says in verse 17a, because all the children, all of God's children participate in his estate granted to all his promised beneficiaries. If we are his children, as in 17b, then we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Present suffering, future glory. Here in verse 18, Paul considers once more the afflictions, trials, tribulations, pain, and suffering that is such an integral part of this veil of tears accompanying our walk through this world. If one follows world events, there are continuous video presentations of upheavals and violence all around the world, including the open and unabashed verbal proclamations of a desire to end the life of one's enemies and sometimes verbalized in the most horrific methods possible. Have we become jaded by the frequency of this sort of visual and audible commentary? Or do we, through these presentations, acknowledge and mourn the depravity of human beings enslaved to fleshly passions? Well, there are skeptics to Christianity who ask the question, where is God in all this? These skeptics have concluded that what we encounter on a daily basis debunks any hope of a good and loving God, that God is powerless to prevent all this suffering and incapable of administering peace and justice. If, on the other hand, God has the power to prevent evil but chooses not to, then God may be powerful but is not loving and good. The key element missing from this oversimplification concerning the economy of grief and pain in this world is the reality of sin. God not only tolerates violence and suffering, but he also, even more so, actually ordains it. Yet, we cannot leave sin out of the equation. It's not God that lacks goodness. The lack of goodness is in us. When transgression entered through our first parents, the entire creation was plunged into ruin, a ruin that included not only people but animals and the land itself. The earth groaned because of sin. The effects of the fall on human species and the ruination of the whole creation are laid at our doorstep. This reflects God's judgment on us. Then it spills over into the domain where we were created to be God's vice regent in exercising dominion over the earth, the animals, and the ground we walk on. This is what Paul is concerned to reflect in verse 18 before us. But first he sets a contrast between the present and the future. Between the present suffering and the future glory that God has prepared for his people. The difference between the present degree of pain we experience and the blessedness to which God has appointed his people is beyond our present understanding. Any comparison that we could devise would be an exercise in futility. Notice that Paul even considers the suffering of this present time as a real suffering, and Paul understood human suffering in a visceral way, enduring the painful reality of it. And even he, Paul, says comparing would be an unworthy effort. Well, creation delivered here in verses 19 through 22. In verse 19, we see a personification of the impersonal forces of nature that are brought into the arena of celebrating God's redemption. This is likewise vividly illustrated in Psalm 98 with the rivers clapping and the hills being joyful. Also in Isaiah 55, 12, the mountains and the hills break out into singing and the trees clap their hands. Well, in my exuberant youth, backpacking for many days into the wilderness 
was an affordable relief from the stress and demands of corporate life. I never heard the clapping or the singing. But while resting quietly for more than my usual 10 or 15 minutes, the forest, I believe, would resume its normal state, wherein the various animals would forget that I was there. And as I became still and peaceful, wonderful natural sounds echoed from near and far came into my ear, and my eye could see activity that had previously halted. It always annoyed me that some snakes and insects of all species and models didn't hesitate to approach me, though. <laughs> In fact, it seemed that they were my closest friend. Well, while resting, I considered that the natural created landscape before me, as beautiful as it was, it, that it's in a condition of the state of futility, it, yet it's still beautiful. I can compare one landscape to another and appreciate the differences, but I can't perceive of the scale of improvement of the future restored earth, nor of our new physical bodies when all things are set free. In verse 21, just as the created world is suffering, in verse 22, because of our sin, all of creation will be liberated from the consequences of sin. Which brings us to the already and not yet phenomenon. Verses 23 through 25. And just as a reminder, I read all these before we started, so I'm not going to duplicate the effort because of time constraints. In verse 15 of this chapter, we were already adopted in Christ. Now here in verse 23, but we're not yet adopted. So there's a present already sense in which we experience adoption in the family of God, but there's still a not yet dimension of what it means to be adopted. In 1 John 3, verse 2, we also have a now phrase, quote, we are the children of God now, end quote. And that verse ends with a not yet phrase, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but when he appears, we shall be like him. So we must wait to see exactly what that entails. Added to this uh, is Romans 8.30, which we won't get to today, but saying that we are glorified. And Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7 says that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, well, these aren't completed acts yet. So I don't feel very glorified most of the time. And my surroundings certainly don't resemble the heavenly realms. That's because the present spiritual reality does not yet match the future physical reality. One day, these two things will be in sync. Here's a pictorial to help solidify that thought, already and not yet. For now, Christians live in a great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not yet experience the fullness of these blessings. Yet, in one sense, we're already adopted, redeemed, sanctified, and saved. In another, these experiences are not yet fully ours. Underneath this theology and practical tension are the two comings of Christ. In his first coming, he inaugurated the last days. In his second coming, he will complete them. In the meantime, we live for now in this overlap of the ages. Well, we could park here for quite a while and chew on this, but we must press on. The help of the Spirit, verse 26 and 27. One of the most important passages in the Bible that instructs us about the nature of godly prayer is these two verses. We understand that our communication with God the Father is through Jesus, our high priest, who is in heaven. 
in this text, we see that our helper, the Holy Spirit, assists in the articulation of our prayers addressed to Christ and the Father. Because the Spirit helps us pray according to the will of God rather than according to the will of our flesh. In a group this size, I'm sure there have been times in your lives as there have been in mine when the circumstance I found myself in was so broken and disjointed that I couldn't verbalize very well what I needed to communicate to God with. So this is where the Spirit helps us by taking whatever sounds we can come up with and convert them into language that we may not totally understand, but nevertheless, God does. He knows our heart, and that's what we're pouring out before him. So this is our last slide. <clears throat> we're now at verse 28. Well, the fact that evil is redeemed for good is based on what theologians call, under the heading of providence, the doctrine of concurrence or confluence. This doctrine holds that certain actions in which humans exercise their will to do as they wish, even of their making diabolical choices, are nevertheless under the providence of God who is at work in these actions. God has the power to trump our evil inclinations and desires and bring good out of all the messes that we create. The doctrine of divine concurrence simply means that God and man are acting and working at the same time or concurrently. Scripture doesn't give us a succinct philosophy of the will, of responsibility and accountability, nor a systematic approach to ethics. Consequently, we don't explicitly ask or answer the sort of, it doesn't specifically answer or ask the questions uh, the way that we'd like. So the doctrine of divine concurrence has a direct parallel with the Trinity and incarnation. Now we know that God is three in one, that Christ is God and man, and we must find a way to reason about these biblical truths without denying one or the other. Likewise, we know that God is sovereign and that man is responsible, but it is helpful for us to first give an account of what action is in order to understand how both God and man are acting concurrently. Well, action is not something that happens apart from a will. If my arm were to spasm due to a seizure, that wouldn't be an action, that would be an event. If I raised my hand to get someone's attention, only then was it an action. An action is always the expression of our intentions. This is why we can justify and excuse ourselves when something happens that was not our intention. Like if I were to break your flower vase, for instance, and I say it was an accident, that I didn't mean to do it. Then what I'm saying is I'm not the author of the event, although I am the cause of it. Well, there's a difference between being the author and being the cause. The cause is strictly mechanical. For example, when the first domino hits another in a sequence of strategically placed dominoes, that first domino did not in itself intend to hit the next one. So the first domino is not the author. But when I intentionally set up the dominoes, in close proximity, and then hit the first domino, causing the sequential chain reaction, I am the author. And by connection, I am the author of the collapsing of all the other dominoes. Now we know that intention determines action in our legal system. If we didn't intend to kill a man, uh, we, we would be charged with manslaughter. However, if we did intend to kill him, we would be charged with murder. So in this way, we can establish a basic distinction between act and action. So let us say that, that dancing is an act, and that dancing for the sheer joy of it 
or dancing for money are distinct actions, but they're separate actions. But if any action is determined by my intent, then it would follow that my end goal, my desire, makes the action either a good one or a bad one. The intent simply is the moral value of the action. Well, the best illustration in the Bible of the doctrine of concurrence is recorded at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph suffered greatly at the hands of his treacherous and jealous brothers. Joseph was separated from his family and his country, sold into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison. Finally, through the providence of God, he was rescued and elevated to the right hand of the Pharaoh, becoming prime minister of Egypt. Now, we all know this narrative very well. Well, to clarify, if I do an action, say, kidnap my brother and sell him into a slave traders, God is also working through me. Not that God works when my will allows him to. Both God and I are working 100% of the time in the same act. But God has a different intention and therefore a different action. That's why Joseph could say in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Therefore, we can, without reservation, agree with Scripture that human beings are responsible for their actions and that God is sovereignly at work in a person's acts. This should be in our Christian toolbox, our thoughts, as well a great encouragement for assimilating all the immoral actions and injustices that take place. As Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And those, for those who are called according to his purpose, because God is at work 100%. Although another person may have an evil intention toward us regarding the same act, God is at work with good intentions. Now this is a transition point where Eric will pick up next week. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, Eric may dig into verse 28 deeper. I don't know. But in any case, uh, we made it through in time. I'm surprised. I thought it would take longer. Okay, if you have questions, uh, if I can't answer it, hopefully somebody else here can. So, or you may just discuss it among yourselves, whichever you prefer. Hi, DeWitt. I appreciate you saying that the uh, what scripture reveals specifically about the will of God is what we need to focus on, like give thanks in all circumstances, be sexually pure. And you, you, I'd like, I wish you could uh, maybe unpack a little bit more. Because um, a lot of people do maybe abuse this point, like, oh, God told me to go buy that pink Cadillac. Or, I mean, it, they do. They confuse God's will in Scripture with what their own will is, the flesh versus spirit. Mm -hmm. However, when we are in the will of God and living according to a spirit, uh, doesn't that lead, um, might that lead uh, his guidance in very specific situations like, uh, okay, I'm not going to go into that location. Or, or, or we're dealing with people on a team uh, he leads us to discern something about that person. Is is that is is the leading of this? I'm trying to maybe distinguish the leading of the spirit to make specific decisions. Uh, is that are according to the will of God? Is it, isn't there a relationship there? Yes, there is. Okay. Uh, what we need to be continually aware of is that we are all very capable of being self-indulgent. And that is just something we have to be aware of. And the awareness of it is, I think, the important step before taking action on whatever it is you want to accomplish or get 
is to acknowledge that, hey, this could be just my sinful flesh. Uh, so let's take some time here and think this through and pray about it. You know, if it's a big event, you certainly would want to take more time and, and more prayer. If it's, you know, as simple as if you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says donuts. Well, you know, I'm a victim of donuts. <laughs> so, you know, the thing that comes in my mind is, you know, there's chocolate-covered old-fashioned and there's chocolate-covered this and that and the other. You know, I think of all that stuff. So I'm, I'm building up my fleshly desire to abuse my body with a product that's not necessarily good for me. Is it okay if I do that occasionally? Well, yeah. But, you know, I don't want to do it every day because I would soon see some results from that, right? Which wouldn't be good, and it would be dishonoring to my body, to my uh, Christian commitment to, to pursue that as a regular course of events. Now, I only use that, uh, that donut thing because it's a, it's a particular weakness that I have. I, I could call out other things, French fries, you know, Sharon back there, I could, could tell you a lot about that. So, we, you know, we all have these things that come up and just hold on a minute before you go and act on it and think about it. You know, what, what is really going on here? So, that, okay, good. I really appreciate you reading uh, from R.C. Sproul's uh, commentary this morning. Yeah. That's the one I've been reading, too, so it was really fun to follow you through that. And one of the things that he makes mention of that has been really helpful for, for me is that he uh, struggled with sin in his life, and he was very open about it. He had a, an addiction uh, to cigarette smoking, mm -hmm. and it took him 20 years to get to the place where he could go without smoking for one day. I mean, he went a long time struggling with that. And then it took him another long period of time to get to the point where he realized he didn't need to smoke and that, his, that God's grace was sufficient for him and he stopped smoking. And so we are in process, all of us, in this battle with sin in our lives. And to hear in Romans 1, I mean Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All these sins, don't let them keep you under the thumb of Satan. It's a process, and we're going to fail, and we're going to trust God. He will pick us up and keep us going. And so I just want to say that for an encouragement to those of us here that battle with this sin that we still have mm -hmm. in, our, in our bodies. That's ex exactly true. That's excellent. I, I just want to pour a little bit of water on that. We are not condemned for the sin. We do experience the result of that sin oftentimes. As in the case you brought up, R.C. died with emphysema. Uh, it's a horrible way to go. So he destroyed his lungs by continuing in this addiction and his body paid the price for it although he wasn't condemned for the sin of it so that's applicable pretty much across the board uh, I've heard a euphemism somewhere in my past that says that 
Yeah, so wild oats. Uh, God on occasion does burn a field of oats, but not always. You reap what you sow, physically at least. So, didn't mean to spoil the moment there, but that's another reality as well. Since there's time, I just wanted to highlight verse 26 where it talks about the, likewise the Spirit also helps us our, in our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit also maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That verse is just, uh, at least in my Christian life, I've seen it abused a lot as a justification for developing a so-called prayer language where you do nothing but groanings uh, or babblings. And so this is talking more about the extremes, like what you said, you know, when there was just you, a bad event, you didn't know what to say. So it's, it's related to that statement about Abba, Father. So a two-year-old will have these, they crash and burn all the time, and then they come to their father or mother, and they, they don't know what to say. They just go cling to their parent and... It's sort of that thing. It's your bonding with the Father by going to him in prayer. You don't know what to say. But that's not the way we always are. We, we often do know what to say, and we mm -hmm. should know what to say. Uh, so we shouldn't pursue the groanings as our everyday prayer language. That's just for the, for the, the exceptional cases. That's exactly correct. The apostles were given the ability to speak known languages known to the people who were uh, at the assemblies in Acts. The apostles didn't know how to speak these languages and dialects, but the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to do that. And that ceased with the apostles. Uh, the charismatics are the people you're referring to with the babblings of uh, Incoherent words, uh, those certainly are, in my estimation, not helpful. Uh, but as I was indicating, uh, there are times in life when we are so broken emotionally by the situation that we're in that we cannot come up with a coherent sentence and we just say, oh God, help me. I don't know what to do. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, I'll leave you to your uh, opportunity to discuss among yourselves uh, what we've talked about here or uh, other matters of uh, interest or concern to you. Uh, they may be setting up a cookie reception here uh, momentarily. I'm not sure, but I think that might be the case. <clears throat> so uh, there will be cookies to uh, lure you into the... <laughs> so your, your, your testing will begin shortly. <laughs> Thank you for your uh, attention and, and patience. Let me end in prayer. Father, I do thank you that you have given us your holy word that we know is the foundation of our belief, our understanding of who you are and who we are. We pray for continued clarity that we would never cease to learn and be at your feet to soak up all of the grace and mercies that you have for us. Bless us. Enrich our lives this day through the preaching and proclamation of your word, through the uh, consumption of your 
body and blood that we will share this day as we uh, have communion. And Father, we thank you for each and every opportunity that you provide us, that you have gone with us when we felt we were alone, but you were always there. And we look forward to the day when we can see you face to face and that we will be transformed from this life of misery and sin and be in your holy presence forevermore. It's in the Christ's name we pray. Amen.